The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. So today we'd like to talk about something that has been making the news for the past, oh, year, year and a half in AI circles. You may have actually seen it referenced in various online publications, maybe in the media, maybe in your chat groups <laughs> around AI and machine learning, and just in general, this thing called GPT-3. And you, maybe you understand what it is, but maybe you don't. And I think, well, you know, it's going to be harder to, to talk about AI and machine learning and not talk about what this GPT-3 thing is. So, well, we'd spend a whole podcast with you on AI today explaining and talking more about GPT-3, right? Exactly. So we thought it was important, as Ron mentioned, you know, this this topic has been in the news for a while. We've done a few uh, podcasts on it talking about Microsoft's investment with OpenAI, but we wanted to spend some time today talking about GPT-3 in general. So, you know, first we wanted to frame this by talking about what GPT-3 is, what you can do with it, and then kind of, you know, how how we're going to move forward with it. Mm-hmm. We at Cognolytica talk about GPT-3 as, you know, a really awesome AI magic trick. And we'll talk about why we say that in a little bit. But, you know, one of the things about magic is that you don't quite know how it works when you're looking at this trick and this optical illusion. And then once you find out how it works, maybe you're a little bit less impressed. Yeah. I mean, the thing about magic tricks is that a good magic trick's an illusion, right? It's like it it actually plays upon the way the brain works. The funny thing is you might not think about that magic tricks are actually brain tricks, but actually magic tricks are tricks on your brain because, you know, maybe while the magician is calling your attention to one thing in his hand or on the stage or some prop, something else is happening that your brain is not perceiving, it's not per, you know picking up on, and all of a sudden your brain is now called to attention to this other thing and that thing has disappeared or transformed or now there's three balls under the cup or maybe like the thing that you were thinking about that's the three of clubs just magically show whatever it is that that's that's the funny thing about magic there's so much interesting nuance about magic tricks because magic tricks are brain tricks i mean they're tricks on your mind i mean a, a computer is never fooled by a magic tricks because it's consuming all the data and says you covered up the elephant with a big sheet of paper you didn't actually cut that person in <laughs> half you put that you know you were holding on to that ball the whole time you know th- when you when you have when you when you're looking at things and you're observing everything and you're consuming all the data nothing is really magic but when you can fool the brain that's when it's magic well why do we why am i talking about magic what is this all about well because a lot of what intelligence is the perception of intelligence is about fooling the human into thinking that you're talking or doing something with another human, right? So when you're having a chatbot, for example, you know, a great chatbot allows you, the one that you never, you actually don't know if, oh, am I talking to a chatbot or am I talking to a person? 
That is the illusion that we want. We actually want that illusion in AI. We, we, you know, we don't want to have you know, real conversations in people because that's not an AI thing. That's just people talking to people. But if you want people talking to machines, you need to have that illusion. Every, also, things like computers being able to find faces of, pic, of people out of, out of pictures or, or computers that can understand text or computers that can make a great prediction and can tell you what happened or you snap a photo of a tree and it tells you what kind of tree it is. These are all the, when you suspend your belief for a moment, it seems very, very much magical. And so a lot of this magic, a lot of this magic of artificial intelligence is when you look at it, of course, you look at how the magic trick is, then you're like, oh, it's just big data. So of course, the big <laughs> question is, right, a lot of what we're trying to do with AI, some people say, oh, that's just statistics and probability with big data. Those are big data magic tricks, Right. But there's some powerful things we can do with this illusion of making computers seem like they can do all these great things, right? Exactly. So we've been talking about GPT-3, but what exactly is it? So it's called Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, or GPT-3, because this is now the third generation of this, is a neural network machine learning model that's been trained to generate text of any sort. And What's magic about this is it requires just a little bit of input text to generate, I mean, surprisingly very large volumes of relevant text. So when humans read it, the the text seems relevant. It doesn't seem like a bunch of, you know, gibberish. And that's where this magic comes in. So you give it just a little bit of, of data, and then it's able to produce a what seems like, you know, well thought out and uh, easy to read by a human text. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why this is this is a good magic trick is because in the past, it's been very hard to have long uh, conversations with computers. What happens is they kind of lose track of the conversation. You know, when you have like a simple thing like, you know, what's your name? And then you say your name and then the kind of computer picks up on it and kind of, or like you talk to Alexa or Siri or, or any of these devices and you say, what's the weather? You can maybe have what's called a few turns of conversation. You know, you t have something and then you, then, then you respond and you talk again. But like over long, if you let the computer keep going, it's sort of like a game of telephone. It kind of, you kind of lose the context. You know, it starts up with like, you know, what's the weather ends up some conversation about sharks or something, which, you know, if you follow the path, it's like, okay, I can kind of see how you got here, but this is not relevant at all. And it's been tricky because mach traditionally machine learning models and algorithms have been sort of much more localized. You know, like they, they can understand the context in, in like a, sh in a very short uh, uh, span. But like saying, hey, computer, I'm going to just give you a little bit of text and be like, tell me about, uh, you know, tell me about America in the 1800s. Go. You know, well, the first two sentences might be good, but by sentence 10, it's like, who the heck knows what it's talking about, right? And that's been the yeah, challenge. Right. And, and, you know, it's a problem because computers don't, I mean, they don't understand. I mean, they don't understand context, right? So people have been trying to do this thing, which is called natural language generation, which is one part of natural language processing for a long time, right? Right. And so that's really um, important. You know, now with this GPT-3, it has been trained on an immense amount of data, and it resulted with a model that had 175 billion machine learning parameters. So a parameter in this case is an individualized weighted neural network 
the connection. I mean, that that's an incredible amount of parameters, you know, to put that in any sort of perspective. So each of these parameters have to be tuned based on its input data. And then you can expect that, you know, it, it just continues to get retrained and tuned. And so um, you're going to need a lot of data and you're going to need a lot of good, clean, well-labeled data in order to do this. To put things in scale, the largest trained language model previous to GPT-3 was Microsoft's Turing NLG model. And that only, we're using, you know, air quotes, had 10 billion parameters. So it was still quite large and GPT-3 is way bigger than that. So, you know, where do you get all this, all this data from? Well, GPT-3 was trained largely on internet data. And so it, you know, was able to just absorb, uh, you know, take a lot of that internet data as well. So, so know the source of, of your data, where this is coming from. But so this is just, you know, like I said, a ton of data and a, a ton of, uh, you know, iteration on learning. Yeah. So basically what you're asking, so if you think about what models are, we've spent a lot of our time talking about what models are. It, it, it's just a, a kind of a prediction, right? Some machine learning models, you say, tell me what category this image is. And let's say you've been training your model to recognize cat or not cat or hot dog or not hot dog. It's going to try to predict and say, oh, this image is a cat, this image is a hot dog. Now you can do have the models do other kind of predictive things. You could say, predict this number, you know, or tell me what the next, um, you know, tell me what the, this word means or things like that. Well, what we're doing with this model, because this is a model that we've basically pre-trained. So we talked about the G part, the generate part, which is generating text. And the P part of GPT-3 is the pre-trained model. We've actually trained it already. What we've done is we've trained it on all this billions of <laughs> tons of data. And what it'll do is it'll try to predict. It'll say, okay, because all models are prediction tools, right? So it'll say, I'm going to predict what I think the next set of text should be given your input text. You start a little poem and you say, a twinkle, twinkle, little star. It'll try to predict. Like, what do I think will come next? Well... That's an easy one for GPT-3. That's going to be an easy one for most things. I'll tell you, oh, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are, and it'll continue and continue. But if you say, you know, you start like a, a fantasy movie script and you say, doctor, you know, the aliens are coming, this thing will try to predict what the next that will be. It'll start producing a whole movie script because it's been, it, it'll say, oh, this looks like a movie script. I'm going to predict this. I think I know where this is going, right? So so that's what the, the P part is. It's the, the pre-trained part. It's been pre-trained on English. It's been pre-trained in a lot of documents. And and that's that's sort of uh, sort of obvious to, to machine learning folks. The T part might be a little bit new. And that is uh, for those of you that are sort of getting into AI recently. But for those of you that have been in AI for the last, I don't know, several years, you're familiar with what's called transformer architecture. And what a transformer architecture, just like any architecture, architecture is just a design, right? Architecture doesn't tell you like specifically what it's built. It's like an architect will say, here's what a, you know, a, a three-floor Victorian home should look like. Well, that's just the design. You have to actually build it. So <laughs> transformer architecture is a design of a neural network. It's a particular design that allows it to do something. And in this case, it allows it to transform networks to, to generate things. And it's an alternative to a different form of neural nets that were traditionally used to generate text. And they were known as recurrent neural nets, RNNs. And you may be familiar with them. There's a few flavors of them called long short-term memory uh, architectures, LSTMs, and GRUs, gated recurrent units. Those are different styles. And they, were, they have usually been good for things like predictive text. 
you have it on your phone. You type, you know, type some word. It's going to predict what it what it thinks, you know, that word should be, what the next word should be. Or it might be doing things like captioning images like, you know, you might see on social media. And it doesn't need to do like paragraphs and paragraphs of text. And as a, as a result, RNNs, you know, they're, they're pretty good. But when you ask these RNNs to do longer conversations, this is where they got stuck. And so transformer architectures have kind of blown through all this by using something called attention mechanisms and other approaches that don't really require it to keep track of where the conversation is or where the network is at any one point. And there have been some approaches before. And basically, this is just, as has mentioned, the latest approach. You know, it takes the latest approach of transformer architecture, you throw a ton of data at it, you throw a, an even more amount of computing power against it, and what you get is this gigantic network with 175 billion parameters. Thank you for the sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> so now, you know, we've kind of explained at a very fundamental what GPT-3 is. That's great. But, you know, what what can you actually use it for? It was great. It was built, you know, but what's the actual, uh, you know, in, uh, like use cases for this? Well, at its most basic level, it's good at generating text. And that can be with a variety of different purposes. So think about any type of text, you know, creating and writing articles or poetry stories, movie scripts, as Ron mentioned earlier, and then any sort of dialogue that you'd need. You know, think of a use case for dialogue, and then that's where you could use this. In the show notes, we will link to some websites that show off some of these GPT-3 creations that AI researchers have done. You know, they're able to say, hey, can you write me a poem um, in the style of Edgar Allan Poe, or write me a poem in the style of William Shakespeare. And they can do that. GPT-3 can do that. While that's, you know, cool, um, I don't think that that has, you know, real-world business applications for most people where you can just have it write you a nice little poem. But so if you if you take this one step further and you go, okay, well, how can GPT-3 be used in more of a, you know, business setting, then you can, it's been able to, to be used for a few different, um, you know, use cases. And we need to be careful about some of these, because as I mentioned earlier, if it's good at generating text, then that means that it can create news articles and it sounds and reads like a human wrote that. So you have to be careful because, you know, we always say you can no longer believe what you see, hear, or read. And in this case, you know, who wrote this article? Uh, you have to be careful, especially as we're seeing more and more AI tools being used to write various different things. You really need to start questioning the source of what you're reading. Mm -hmm. But there's even, even even some more remarkable things. You know, if you think about what programming code is or websites, it's just text, right? I mean, it's text that a computer can understand, but obviously it's also text that a human can understand because they're writing it. So people have been able to write entire programs where GPT-3 has actually written the program and all it did say, it, there's this cool application that says like, uh, give, write me the script for doing a red button with the text hello on it. And it'll actually create the HTML and the JavaScript just by typing, write this button for me. Or there's another one where it's like, um, 
create for me a watermelon colored button. And it's like, it was just like blows your mind. This thing actually created like a watermelon color. It was like a pink with the green border. And it just knew how to do that. And it created with the proper CSS, which is the style sheets and the HTML. And it was sort of like, holy cow, right? Because what it, what it was able to predict, it's like, okay, I think I know what a button is like. I'm going to predict that this is correct. It was even doing things like, this is crazy, writing prescription, medication prescriptions. Those are text. You would say, oh, write me a prescription for this. I would create the prescription for it or answer questions, like random questions that, that people put together. And and this is when things got kind of like crazy, like, holy cow, is there nothing that this GPT-3 model can't do? Because this model's already been trained. It's not like you need to customize this model for different things. The model was built, and all you did is you gave it a little bit of starter, you know, text, sort of like the 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 thing that gets it going, and then you say fill in the blanks, and it would fill in the blank. And so this is where people are going crazy. There's like all oh, sorts of stuff that you can do, and and like there's an entire subreddit if you want to go to Reddit on things people are doing with with GPT three, and it, it was really uh, you know pretty pretty interesting, and and we'll we'll link to some of those examples, um, but we'll talk a, a little bit about before we get into some of the limitations and some of the issues with GPT. GPT-3, both in terms of a technology, but also in terms of, well, where is GPT-3 coming from in terms of the organization that's putting together and what exactly is the future of GPT-3? And so before we get into technology limitations, maybe we should talk a little about where GPT-3 comes from. Yeah, I think that's really important to also to say, you know, where does it come from? What is OpenAI and why was it even created and why was why was GPT-3 created and, and you know, where's it going? So GPT-3 emerged as a research project from OpenAI. And OpenAI is an AI research laboratory that was formed in 2015 to be a nonprofit counterweight to DeepMind that was formed a little bit earlier than that and then acquired by Google. So you know, the objective of open AI is to promote and develop friendly AI in ways that benefit humanity as a whole. So it has some pretty notable founders that include Elon Musk, Sam Altman, Greg Brockman, and a few others as well. And the work of open AI ranges from reinforcement learning research, including their open AI gym, um, and then, you know, it also includes things uh, so that they have meta-learning robots and other applications because they're really just trying to push the boundaries of what's possible with AI. DeepMind focuses a lot on reinforcement learning as well. So OpenAI is supposed to be, you know, their, their friendly AI counterweight. So as we had mentioned earlier, GPT-2 was first released before GPT-3. That had shown remarkable capabilities, even though it was trained on a smaller data set than GPT-3. But let's be honest, these data sets are still massive. So they're, I mean, small right. is a relative term. GPT-2 had about 1.5 billion parameters, which you could set. GPT-3, as we said, has 175 billion parameters, which is, both of them are very mind-blowing numbers. But <laughs> um so, you know, when GPT-2 originally came out, this is maybe a year, year and a half ago, depending on, on when you're listening to this podcast, could be even longer. Initially, uh, OpenAI said that it was too dangerous to come out and that 
uh, you know, they weren't sure if the, if it was ready to be released, but then lo and behold, it was. Yep. So initially it was thought that, you know, we always say that the more data, the better, but it, you do reach a point where the more data, not always the better. And what is that number? Well, we're just not sure. That's why people say the more data, the better. So it was simply thought that throwing more data at the GPT model would start to show diminishing returns and really limit, you know, how mm-hmm. how much um, it was able to do. However, GPT-3 has surprised researchers because they have continued to throw more data at it and it seems to, you know, perform better at scale. So there, I think that that's why they're continuing to just put so much data with it. Um, and and so that has been an incredible thing that, you know, we're seeing what's possible with GPT-3. And that's kind of a quick background about OpenAI and, mm-hmm. and GPT-3. But now you can say, okay, well, they've created it. So what do they plan on doing with it? Yeah. And, and you know, that's the interesting thing about the GPT-3 model. It's like, you know, when you have, when you train a model on cats, it's like, you you know, it gets to like 90 something percent accuracy. If you add like 10 million more images of cats, it's not actually going to get any better. Usually actually they get worse because now it's just to like train on things that, that it, you shouldn't be training on. It's like, you know, before it was like, oh, it was great. Now it's like finding all sorts of weird quirky things that it's learning and all this extra data, you know, has all this extra noise. And GPT-3 is not doing that, which is kind of interesting. So, you know, originally when people put when OpenAI came out with the model, they're like, well, th- you know, they they released it in increments, and these and these like we're going to release a smaller version, kind of see what people are doing with it. Maybe now release the more powerful version. Also, maybe to see if people are going to start, you know, doing crazy AI generated spam or who know, who who knows. They wanted to ke- sort of keep the lid on it, but I guess they were satisfied because they released the full blown model, and now you know, then then there was a beta period that anybody could get access to it. Like anybody, you had to apply for it. And actually, we had, we had applied for it, but for whatever reason, they, they didn't grant our thing. So OpenAI people, come on. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, but the, the open beta ended anyways, October 1st of 2020. And that's when they that that's when they're like, okay, you know what? We need to make a business out of this. And so now GPT-3 is not free. And there's like a tiered model where there is a free level for like 100,000 credits. So you have to like sort of figure out what the credits are good for or for three months. So I guess what I think it's whichever one comes first, maybe. So you got three months or 100,000, which one, ever one you run out of first. And, and then there's like some additional tiers and you can get access to it. So, I mean, that's interesting. So remember originally we talked about how OpenAI was a nonprofit, right? We're like the company was mm-hmm. formed as a nonprofit, a 501c3. But in 2019, they changed their operational structure to become a for-profit company that has what's called a capped profit. I guess they're going to say, well, we're going to be for-profit, but we're not going to like try to optimize for making lots of money. We'll have like a limit. We'll make, we'll make money, but we'll sort of keep it under control. And, but the other thing, of course, that allowed them to do is allow them to go out and raise money from other companies because a huge network that requires tons of computing power is not exactly cheap. So, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and there's other reasons to raise money also because they wanted to they wanted to keep their employees, right? Because they had some of the best researchers and they were losing their employees to other people and they wanted to be able to pay them the right salaries, but also give them some sort of like, uh, oops, uh, give them some sort of equity in the company and you can't really do equity in a nonprofit. So they kind of did all that sort of stuff. But you know what? That kind of changed things a little bit. So uh, how did that change right. things? Right. Mm-hmm. 
So we talked about how Microsoft had invested in OpenAI. So they they have put $1 billion into OpenAI. Now, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, GPT-3 required lots of training data, and it's just a massive, massive system. So you can say, okay, wow, you're going to need a huge amount of capital to support the tremendous needs of computing and data and bandwidth and skills as well. You know, we always talk about how there's a shortage of of people in this field. And so OpenAI didn't want to lose those uh, people that they had to other companies that may be able to give them a higher salary. So when Microsoft invested this $1 billion into OpenAI, the company said that it would probably spend it completely within five years, which some people can say, wow, that's shocking. But, you know, think about all the time and investment and money and, you know, that needs to go into everything that we talked about. And then you say, okay, well, maybe that makes sense. So at the time when Microsoft put this money in, people were saying, wow, you know, look at them. They're doing this to really help benefit open AI and furthering AI research. And this is so great. But then in September of 2020, OpenAI announced that Microsoft had an exclusive license on the GPT-3 model. So that means that while OpenAI can still make use of GPT-3, uh, it can make it available for the public on this pay-to-access model that we talked about. It went from beta to now this pay-to-access model. Microsoft still owns the exclusive use and control of the GPT-3 source code model and data. What does that exactly mean? And what can Microsoft do or what will they do with that? That time will tell. So we're going to see. But remember how we talked about earlier how GPT-2 was so dangerous that they weren't even sure that they wanted to release it? Well, now look, we have GPT-3 and they're selling it for consumption. Yep. So another <laughs> thing that we need to consider yeah. as well. It's on Microsoft's Azure if you want it there. So, so yes, it is, in case you want to buy it. <laughs> so what does this mean? I mean, obviously GPT-3, GPT-3 still seems very cool. I mean, there's lots of great applications. We just talked about this. It's like if you need the computer sort of fill in the blanks, you know, and sort of st- you give it a little bit of starter and it kind of picks it up and it does a relatively decent job, then then GPT-3 is, is pretty pretty good. And you're like, who cares if Microsoft owns it, I guess, as long as you can still access it, that's good. That's true. But there's a lot of people who worry because let's say you're a competitor to Microsoft. We'll say, well, will Microsoft let, you know, name Microsoft competitor in any particular market? Will they let you use their thing to do something that's competitive with Microsoft? You know, Amazon, will will they let Amazon in there? Sir? Who knows? You know, will, G- will Microsoft take GPT-3, which is still open and access, and make it even a more powerful GPT-4 and not give anybody access to that, right? Will they will right. they take the GPT-3 stuff and just embed it into their products and, and, and make it exclusive and say, huh, well, you, it's embedded, it's in our stuff, but you can't use it if it's not our stuff. So you can imagine things like Microsoft Teams or Skype or something having some GPT-3 thing, and you can't get it on any other product, and it's sort of like just locked into that. That's what people worry about because, remember, OpenAI started as this nonprofit thing. Now the GPT-3 is really a commercial thing, and it's part of it. So, you know, a lot of researchers don't like this. You know, uh, you know, they're saying, you know, part of what AI research has been all about and part of the thing that GPT-3 itself re- relies upon is all this academic research that had gone up to this point, all these other models, all these other pre-trained models, all these other transformer networks, all these other things. And, you know, people talk about 
the fact like, well, what does it mean when you have really powerful systems like AlphaGo where you can't get the code? GPT-2, GPT-3. There, there are all these issues and people are starting to get concerned that it may actually slow down research. In this. If you're a researcher, right, and you want to make use of GPT-3 or something like that to, to even push things further, but you can't because now it's closed behind locked doors, where does that get you? And, you, and, as, and as an academician, you're not going to have access to 175 billion parameters of data. You're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to have access to the same code. You're not going to have access to the same data so that you couldn't even replicate it even if you wanted to. So here you have this big thing that is now becoming commercial. And there are people who are worried that it may actually have this, this effect of slowing down uh, research, which is not so good. So... Um, you know, that's sort of kind of where we're at. So we can talk a little bit about sort of where things are going. I do want to note that Jan LeCun, who you may may know, he is a very noted AI researcher, um, you know, just, just a very well known for advancing convolutional neural nets and all this sort of stuff. He actually wrote something not too long ago about uh, GPT-3. And he's saying like, look, um, even though GPT-3 can do all these things, people have such unrealistic expectations as what it can do. He says, just remember, it's still a language model. And he said, this is actually what he said. He said, GPT-3 is a language model, which means you feed it text and you ask it to predict the continuation of that text one word at a time. GPT-3 doesn't have any knowledge of how the world actually works. It only appears to have some level of background knowledge because that's in the statistics of the text. Because when people write about this stuff, the people have the knowledge. So it looks like the system has the knowledge. But the knowledge is very shallow. And he goes, as a question-answering system, GPT-3 is not very good. He goes, as a dialogue system where you're like actually trying to have conversations, it's not very good. You know, it's entertaining. <laughs> he goes, it could be mildly useful. Um, but he goes, he goes, he goes, trying to build intelligent machines by scaling up language models is like trying to build a high-altitude airplanes that go to the moon. You might beat the altitude, but you're not going to get to the moon it's because going to the moon requires a completely different approach than an airplane. So it doesn't matter how powerful you make that airplane, you're still going to end up here on Earth. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's his, his comment on it, and, and I think that's like one of those limitations, right, GPT-3. It really mm -hmm. can't do maybe a lot of the things that people think that GPT-3 can do, right? You know, and that analogy is really interesting because it's saying if you want to get to the moon, you want to, you know, imagine we had never gotten to the moon before. Do you just continue to build aircraft the way that you have and hope that eventually you'll get there? Or do you have to really reimagine things? And I think that same question can be asked of artificial intelligence. If we are really trying to get to these goals of artificial general intelligence, AGI, do we just continue to invent and reinvent ways that we're currently doing things? Or do we really need to come up with just some fundamentally new way that we have not done before? And I think that that's really at the core of GPT-3. You know, is this going to help get us to that dream of and realizing that goal of artificial general intelligence? Or is this just in es essence, another big data magic trick? We mm -hmm. talked about that at the beginning. Is GPT-3 really just a big data magic trick? Or is it actually, you know, moving us towards that ultimate goal? Yeah. I mean, another way to think about it is imagine that GPT-3 was like this amazing parrot, like an actual parrot. And you say, hey, parrot, I'm going to talk to me in Shakespeare. And you just start like, okay, forsooth. And the parrot's like, 
horseshoes, tender. And it just, you know, the parrot does this thing. You're like, wow. And you're thinking to yourself, that parrot must be super intelligent. Or it's just like, no, that's just like an amazing, that parrot is just an amazing parrot. It just learned everything and now can repeat it. But that doesn't mean the parrot understands any of that stuff. And so we have here GPT-3 is like this amazing parrot, right? And that's what people say. It's like, it's fantastic. It mimics great. And there's a lot of great applications for mimicry. As a matter of fact, those may be good applications for GPT-3. If you think if you have this like computerized parrot that can like, create all sorts of stuff. What can you do with it? Well, we could do all sorts of stuff. You know, we can, we can, you know, do solve coding problems. We can solve maybe medicine problems, maybe, maybe make FAQ systems much better. Like a human doesn't have to come up with frequently asked questions. Maybe the system could come up with them. It can think of maybe even 30 or 40 more answers that you would never have thought of because that's what other similar maybe websites or whatever they have those FAQs, so you should can too. Maybe maybe the systems can create privacy policies. Maybe they can create insurance contracts. Maybe they can create all these things where it's like, does a human really need to be in there? Well, maybe a lawyer should check the insurance contract before it goes out. But but you know, maybe maybe like having <laughs> having a machine. You know, these are great. These are good applications of parrots. Like when when a, when you, if you hand a smart parrot that can do this, right? And it is using machine learning, so it's not a programming trick. It really is a big data trick. This is really useful. And I think from that perspective, maybe Microsoft's big gamble, their billion-dollar investment, may actually might be a great deal because – and a good deal because, you know, now they have the exclusive license on this. Nobody else can have it. No one, and for someone else to create it, to actually create like, you know, uh, 175 – I should do the effect. 175 billion neurons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> parameters that is that that's you know that's a really hard thing to do so so maybe microsoft's billing is actually a, like a bargain because of all this extra stuff you can do with it but then again you know that's just that's just one piece of ai and that's just the natural language generation piece it doesn't help us with many of the other problems that we have with ai right Exactly. And so, you know, while this is useful and it, you know, covers one of those seven patterns of AI that we regular, regularly talk about, that conversational pattern, it's just one of those seven patterns. And so, you know, it, at the end of the day, is that really going to help us get towards our goal of AGI and how far can we actually move things? So there's more to, you know, the AI landscape than just natural language processing. And there certainly will be more models that are developed by others that can perform these similar magic tricks. And, you know, what will be the next one? I'm not sure, but I know that there will be another one invented. So will Microsoft's exclusive license on that model? Is that cause for concern? Is the fact that OpenAI no longer a nonprofit cause for concern? Is the fact that they're now, you know, licensing this technology and the, or allowing it for, to be able uh, to be purchased and that Microsoft has this exclusive license on it? What does all this mean? Is, is this something that we really should be fearful of or are we just going to have, you know, Ron talked about parroting and then we've talked a lot about magic tricks in here. You know, what does this really mean at the end of the day? And is this any indication of where things are going? So as always, we are going to be making sure that we keep an eye on this topic and GPT-3. I mean, you know, in the coming years, they're going to be GPT-4 and then GPT-5 and GPT-6. I mean, how, how far can we go with this? Who knows? Um, and who knows how far we'll need to go with it as well? You know, there is that 
diminishing returns at some point. So I think that people will continue to push the boundaries of what's possible. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that this is causing and creating some sort of benefit as well. So, you know, there'll be continued investment, continued research by others. And I'm sure that it's going to help move this space forward with both innovation and research and, you know, what's possible. Like I said, we will be monitoring this and keeping an eye on it. Who knows, maybe in six months or a year, we'll have another podcast on this topic as well, especially as news develops. At Cognolytica, we're always covering this stuff. So, you know, we encourage you to go to Cognolytica.com to check it out. We have a few additional events coming up. We have our machine learning lifecycle event coming up January 26th through 28th of 2021. So if you'd like to register for that event, it, you're able to do so right now. Go to cognolitica.com slash events, and you can check out all of the events that we have coming up. We encourage you to attend. This is going, the, the first event that we had, the Data for AI conference, really focused around the whole data aspect. So data preparation, data labeling, getting your data in a usable state for artificial intelligence. The machine learning lifecycle event picks up from there. So once you have your data in a usable state, how do you go about with building your machine learning models, managing them, retraining them, uh, you know, uh, ML ops, governance, all of that stuff will be covered in this event. So uh, we will be plugging that a lot between now and January. So please do check that out. As always, we'll also post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. I know that we talked about a few different things um, that we will definitely make sure to reference in the show notes so that you guys can check that out as well. And then at Cognolytica, I know that some of our uh, podcast listeners have gone through our training, our CPMAI, the um, Cognitive Project Management for Artificial Intelligence training. So we encourage you to check that out as well. You can go to cognolitica.com slash training to learn more. We now offer it as a fully virtual self-paced course so that you can take it on your own time. And we just discuss these concepts in more detail as well. So we encourage you to check that out. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica, all rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.